Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summetry Project. It is my pleasure to welcome you back into the virtual studio. And in this instance, uh, it's the opportunity uh, to listen to uh, our podcast with Michael Beckley uh, in the series Shaking the Global Order, Series 2, Episode 5. Shaking the Global Order is, of course, one of three different podcast series that you can find at our uh, Global Summetry Project website. That's globalsummetryproject.com. Um, and in addition to the uh, Shaking the Global Order series, you can also find our Summit Dialogue series in our Now series. Michael was good enough to join me uh, in the virtual studio to discuss uh, the uh, tensions between the U.S. and China and the impact of those tensions on the shape of the emerging uh, global order. Michael has uh, written a dynamic series of articles recently, himself alone, but also with colleagues in both foreign affairs and foreign policy. And uh, these articles focus on uh, the United States, on China and U.S.-China relations. So it's uh, with great pleasure that I invited uh, Michael to join us uh, to discuss uh, the rising tensions and the consequences on uh, for the global order and for the United States and China in the Asia-Pacific. Michael Beckley is the Gene Kilpatrick Visiting Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He There, he's a re, his research focuses on U.S.-China competition, long-term trends in the U.S.-China power balance, U.S. alliances and grand strategy, and U.S. economic and defense policy in East Asia. He is, uh, at the same time, an associate professor at Tufts University. Uh, Michael is uh, the author of Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower that was published by Cornell University Press in 2018. So, let's join uh, Michael in the virtual studio to discuss these issues. So, uh, welcome to the virtual studio, Michael. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. So, in uh, 2018, you wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs. Uh, the piece was titled, uh, Stop Obsessing About China. Beijing Will Not Imperil U.S. Hegemony. You led off by saying China is not about to overtake the United States economically or militarily, quite the contrary. So let's let's think about the economy side of that first, Michael. Uh, why do you think China is not about to overtake the U.S. in terms of the its economy? So China's economy is very big, but it generates high growth at high costs. So the the production costs of the average Chinese firm, you know, the firm has to use two times the capital and five times the labor of the average American firm producing the same products just because it's it's generally less efficient. Uh, the costs of having to feed, clothe, police, um, clean up after the world's largest population sucks away a lot of China's wealth. Uh, the costs of 
maintaining this totalitarian state to monitor what the Chinese people are doing and having these huge gulags in Xinjiang, that also is very costly. And so what I try to do in my research is show how the, the, the metrics we use to measure economic clout and wealth are, are gross measures, like gross domestic product. And they only mm-hmm. count things on the asset side of the ledger. And so they systematically exaggerate the wealth and power of countries with big populations like China and India. What they don't capture are all the costs of having to maintain those big populations and having relatively less efficient economies. And what I do is basically create a balance sheet and put all the assets of every country on one side of the ledger, liabilities on the other. And when you do that, China has significantly, you know, several times less wealth than the United States, even though China's GDP is by some measures already bigger than the United States is. And you can do that same kind of balance sheet logic across the board for China's trade volumes, for its finances, for its military power. And a lot of my research is basically dedicated to doing that so that we have a, a clear sense of China's capabilities. Okay, um, so obviously the the inputs, uh, the input costs, are are where some where the problems are. Now, I've talked to some of my colleagues, and and they seem to think, and I wanted to get your reaction, that while they acknowledge uh, what you've said about uh, the inefficiency, that I mean the big and inefficient part of it, of the equation, their view, some view. Um, it that uh, what you're you know you're likely to see is um, a growing education, uh, general education in China, which will make uh, their workers far more uh, productive than they currently are, and so they can kind of deal with some of those costs and also deal with something that you that you mentioned, uh, which is the eroding uh, the eroding workforce. That is the demographic problem. That is. Uh, uh, put simply, uh, growing old before you grow rich, uh, which is the phrase that everybody talks about. Um, so I take it you don't really see that uh, transformation of the workforce in China over the next period of time. No, it'll it'll help, but it's just going to be swamped by so many other forces. So I mean, you can you can spend decades trying to educate your workforce, but first of all, China's starting from an extremely low base. Its current workforce, over seventy percent of the population, has less than a high school degree. Mm-hmm. So you got to somehow build up from that. It also takes a lot of money, which frankly, I don't know if China has because right now high school, you have to pay for high school throughout most of China. And that's why so many of China's citizens, especially in rural provinces, drop out of school after middle school. And, um, you know, the only way to make that up is through massive spending. And we can talk maybe later about China's debt problems and the problems it's having generating wealth. I just don't know how well they're going to be able to afford that. On top of all this, I think the education issue is almost moot because it's going to be swamped by the long-term demographic trends that are going on in China. And they really are dire. I mean, by the end of the century, China's population is going to be half the size of what it currently is. Uh, it's going to lose just in the, ne- by, in the next 30 years, it's going to lose more than 200 million working age adults and at the same time gain more than 300 million senior citizens. We've never seen this kind of rapid population reversal in, in history, and it's largely because of, you know, the one-child policy in China's peculiar demographic history. Mm-hmm. So just even if you have a more educated workforce, you're just going to have so many fewer workers and so many more elderly citizens that China's productivity is inevitably going to suffer. And so it's going to make it hard to catch up to a country like the United States that actually has a growing, it's one of the only major economies that's going to have a growing working age population over the course of this century. 
Mm-hmm. And and I take it you don't think you know clearly part of the um, thinking, presumably on the, on the leadership's uh, part, the Chinese leadership part, is to move up the value chain so that you're not as reliant on you know. Uh, basically producing, you know, the primary goods at the bottom end, which requires a lot of labor, not a whole lot of skill or education. You don't see that having a, an impact on the way in which uh, the equation that you're talking about is 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 worked out in the next 10 years. Oh, I, I think it'll have an effect in an absolute sense. China will gain in wealth and will improve over time, but relative to a country like the United States that Mm-hmm. Is, is continuing to chug along. Um, it's, it's just hard to close that gap. And just historically, it's very hard for poor countries to, to close the gap with rich countries. And, you know, China certainly is going is pushing hard on automation. And I think one X factor in everything I'm saying is whether new technologies powered by big data and using artificial intelligence to train algorithms to replace huge swaths of the workforce, if China can somehow master that, then that alleviates at least the productivity problem and maybe has, you know, exponential, it may, it may ultimately, it may fundamentally transform a lot of the theories we have about, you know, the relative advantages of democracies versus autocracies or what it takes to go from a developing country to a developed country. But I'm, I'm still a little skeptical. It's going to have transformative enough effects to make up for the demographic bomb, the environmental catastrophe that has beset China, which has plowed through so many of its natural resources, et cetera. Okay, so a very big economy, but not a particularly productive or efficient one. So let's turn to the other side of the equation that you've talked about, which, of course, is the the military side. Now, again, in 2019, you wrote a piece called "The United States Should Fear a Faltering Should Fear Faltering China." Be- Beijing's assertiveness betrays its desperation. Uh, that was a piece that you you wrote. I, I should what, I should just quickly point out I don't get to choose the titles for any of these yeah, pieces, no. so I, I will not be held responsible for the fadiness <laughs> of any of them. Um, but I'll stand by the main arguments. Yeah, that's just for for our for our audience to know, so they may want to they okay. may want to read it. I'm not blaming you at all for for the titles. They do go on a bit, I must say. Okay, but what you did say was when fast growing um, great powers run out of economic steam, they typically do not mellow out. Rather, they become prickly and aggressive. Uh, Rapid growth has fueled their ambitions, raised their citizens' expectations, and unnerved their rivals. Um, So, you know, and and you followed up, by the way, um, uh, with an article in 2020, and this is with uh, your colleague Hal Brandt, and he and the two of you then wrote a this piece that uh, titled <laughs> competition with China could be short and sharp. That was, that's pretty good, good <laughs> titling, I guess, but the same argument, right? Uh, historically, the, mo- the most desperate dashes have come from powers that have been on the ascent, but grew worried that their time was running short. Is that where you see China today? I mean, in this notion of getting slightly desperate, that is the leadership getting slightly desperate in the, in the face of, um, the success kind of coming to an end? Yeah, I, I don't like the term desperate. That was definitely an editor's choice because it, con- it conveys this idea of like sure. emotional, you know, irrational response. But just the idea that China's power 
is sort of, I see it as a peaking power, no longer as a really a rising power. This is a country that has been rising for decades, but now its economy is slowing. In fact, its economic growth slowdown is much worse and more severe than most people think. And at the same time, it's suffering from increasing strategic pushback. Uh, you know, anti-China sentiment around the world has soared to levels that we haven't seen since the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. And some of this is COVID, of course, but a lot of it is just a, fr- a reaction by many, many countries to China's increasingly aggressive and repressive behavior over the last decade or so. And, you know, Hal and I have, a, a, in our own research, have studied these things. What happens when a, a formerly rising power, when its economy starts to slow down, when other countries start to kind of gang up on it, how do they normally react? Do they dial back their ambitions or do mm-hmm. they try to shoot the moon and try to blast through this closing ring of encirclement, try to seize closing windows of opportunity before they're gone forever, try to expand abroad to try to rejuvenate their economies or at least ward off foreign rivals. And, um, you know, and what we found is, yeah, they, they, they don't mellow out. They tend to go out often rapaciously while at the same time cracking down on dissent at home. And just on the economic side, I mean, it's not just the like classic cases like, you know, the, how the depression affects, you know, politics in Germany or Japan, right, in the interwar years. It's also cases most people don't think of, like the United States in the late 19th century after a, a big post-Civil War economic expansion has this series of horrible depressions, right? And people were freaked out that, you know, the continent had been taken over and that there was a glut of excess capacity that they didn't know what to do with and we needed more markets. And this actually impels the United States to, for one thing, crack down on labor unrest at home brutally. This is like the most brutal period of U.S. labor history. But at the same time, to make this huge push into markets, new markets in Latin America and East Asia, and then to build a huge navy to secure those far-flung economic assets. And so there's this big global push that is initially motivated by an economic downturn that causes American policymakers to think, hey, we need to start making moves abroad to rejuvenate our economy. So there's even mild cases like that where the country succeeded essentially in rebooting itself. Um, But there's also catastrophic cases like, you know, uh, Imperial Japan, where you have the depression, they start taking over huge parts of East Asia, and that catalyzes a world war um, in Asia. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I don't want to give more credence than it deserves, but of course, you, it, to a certain degree, you're talking about the flip side of the Thucydides trap, right? I mean, because we, we, we you're are... looking at the other side of it, not not the the former um, major power, but the rising power and some of the consequences when changes occur. Am I right on that? Yeah. And I mean, actually, you know, if you look at the examples that people give in the Thucydides trap, we actually think that the, the real Peloponnesian or the big one happened after Athens had already sort of peaked and then it started to make moves and form alliances. We can maybe get into that later. But we also, Walter Russell Mead, this columnist, wrote um, a piece where he talked about the Lenin trap. He said, it's not the Thucydides trap. It's actually something that Vladimir Lenin predicted a long time ago, where a capitalist country runs out of steam domestically, gets awash with excess capacity, and then has to basically engage in economic imperialism. And then that tends to generate, you know, they start to step on the toes of other great powers, bump into their spheres of influence, and that Mm -hmm. generates conflict. Lenin, of course, was wrong about a number of things, including the idea that this was an inevitable result of capitalism. But I think that basic dynamic 
um, you know, I've gone through a lot of the historical cases and you see similar dynamics where a regime starts to slow down at home and then to reboot its economy basically goes abroad. And even though it didn't mean to necessarily um, become an overseas empire or, or generate great power conflict, it just, it has to build military assets to protect those, those economic assets. And that inevitably steps on the economic it, activity. Exactly. Exactly. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because, you know, Many years ago, I worked with some folks and we were looking at the Thucydides trap, Graham Allison, of course, becoming quite famous for his views on that. And, you know, we were able to generate about 14 cases. And it's very clear that after World War II, the cases don't lead to the result that he predicts. And um, and it's interesting that you you seem to even address earlier, earlier cases. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, hopefully, people will look more closely at the data, because it doesn't seem to comport with the argument that uh, Graham, Graham put forward. I, uh, yeah, I'm definitely on your side of the argument. And the other point I'd add is, you know, we, it, it causes us to think just in terms of either rising or falling powers, you need to be right. Right. But in reality, in most cases, you could still have a rising power that is suffering declining trends, like its economy is starting to slow, or it sees the pushback on the horizon, even if it's technically still sort of rising. And, and to us, those are the most dangerous powers. The peaking powers are really the ones that are that tend to shoot the moon. So um, your, your colleague, and I want to look a little bit more closely at this, your colleague actually wrote a piece with, um, with uh, Jake Sullivan. Uh, that was in 2020. And, um, of course, as probably the audience is well aware, Jake is now the national security advisor to uh, President uh, Biden. And there they they kind of uh, the title was uh, China has two paths to uh, two uh, paths to global domination. So they talked about the potential for China, you know, uh, trying to achieve a regional dominance. But they do pose the um, possibility of China seeking something bigger, in part through Eurasia and the BRICS and, and the Silk Road and all that, in effect, seeking global domination. Where do you stand on that? Do you, do you think that the leadership sees uh, the objective as, uh, as, as global domination? Yeah, I don't want to speak for for Hal and Jake, but no, I think yeah, sure. in my in my in my opinion, uh, you know, they they see regional domination as a stepping stone for global domination. I mean, the first the one thing they learned from the United States is first you need to become the hegemon of your region, you need to secure your <clears> home base, and then you can push out. I think the point that Jake and Hal are getting at though is that we we usually assume that this all means China needs to blast through the chain of alliances the United States has strung along China's maritime periphery, but they were raising the possibility that, well, maybe China could just go West and just build, you know, through something like the Belt and Road, build this Eurasian land empire, and then use that as its base of operations and almost short circuit the route across Eurasia instead of going East first. Right. I mean, it seems highly, maybe I'm incorrect, but it seems highly speculative and, and, uh, certainly calling on us to intuit what the Chinese leadership is thinking. And it's not clear to me, you know, that one gets a sense that they're thinking anything like that. But I mean, I don't know what your reaction uh, to it is, um, uh, the, that thesis of global domination. 
Whether, I mean, I think they, they certainly want it. I think leaders in a lot of countries would love to have their country be the dominant country. It doesn't mean that they think it's going to happen anytime soon or that that's their number one immediate priority. I think they then identify a set of lower level, either steps along that route or just things that need to be taken care of first. I, I tend to be more persuaded by accounts that zoom in on those just because I think for China, it's in such a rough neighborhood with so many either hostile or unstable neighbors. It's got this big sprawling economy to manage. So it's the, you know Chinese leaders have plenty on their plate that is going to take up a lot of their bandwidth. But I but I mean it's it's in Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping's uh, speeches. It's in lots of Chinese government documents that talk about you know basically restoring China, the China dream, you know restoring China to its rightful yeah, the place. China dream thesis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they clearly they have high ambitions. It's just not clear whether they think this is going to be something that's going to happen immediately or, or, or what I tend to think is just kind of a long-term aspiration right. that you reach towards as you can while you deal with all these lower level things along the way. Well, and, 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 I, you know, I, I wonder, I used with you, I mean, yes, the United States did kind of expand out principally economically and, and only secondarily, it seems to me, uh, through uh, possession of the Philippines and uh, and other areas in the, in the Caribbean, but uh, you know, largely uncontested the United States. But that's not true of China. China has, you know, contested uh, neighbors all around its uh, its uh, periphery. Right. So it seems to me to be significantly different proposition for a leadership in Beijing looking outward as opposed to an American leadership looking, leave aside the time zone or the time difference, but uh, the just the view of the world as you see it from your capital. Yeah, I think, I mean, certain elements are similar. So like I, I you know, people that have really studied the Belt and Road have shown that a lot of the projects are driven to basically create business for these state-owned enterprises and, and right. export some excess capacity. So you could argue that that is sort of a similar well, not the private sector, but like the you know, the business sector driving strategic interests the, abroad. The commercial but, world, yeah. Sure, sure. But then, but then certainly there's plenty of other cases where, I mean, it's a clear top-down geopolitical rationale of, you know, breaking through the first island chain, of turning the East and the South China Seas into something more akin to a Chinese lake where they can call the shots, um, you know, taking back Taiwan. These are all centrally directed from the very top-down um, explicit goals. So, so I take it that your thinking is that uh, you know the the, ter the territorial aggrandizement uh, aspect of Chinese foreign policy, most particularly if you look uh, South China Sea, you know East China Sea as well, of course. But and then the threatening behavior towards Taiwan, um, that this is all part of a an effort to seek. Uh, greater control? Um, is that what the leadership is about? I, I think it's more, I think it's more fundamental than that. It's just to make China whole again. This is not aggrandizement from their perspective. This is revanchism. This is taking back what was improperly taken mm -hmm. from China during the century of humiliation. And you, to really understand this, because it may look irrational, right, from an outsider perspective, why would China jeopardize its trade relationships, et cetera, by, you know, militarizing rocks in the South China Sea or, or pressing its claims against Taiwan or even invading Taiwan. But if you understand the century of humiliation and the role it plays in the Communist Party's legitimacy, then it starts to make more sense. Because like, think about it for, for 100 years, right, China's just brutalized by Western imperial powers and then the hated historical enemy, Japan. 
and these territories are, are extracted away. All the way, you know, Hong Kong was handed back not that long ago, right? So this thing has gotten stretched out for a long time. Mm-hmm. And for the CCP, they are the ones that allowed China to brush that off, right? At least according to their narrative, they beat the Japanese. You know, they they caught they allowed China to stand up and unify the country and have been turning it into this colossus over the last few decades. And so this idea that, well, now we're going to take back what was improperly taken from us uh, to 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 make China whole again, that is a very powerful narrative. It has deep emotional resonance for the Chinese people. And it's absolutely core for the CCP because even if the economy slows, they can say, well, look, we beat the Japanese and we're gonna be the ones that take back what was taken from us. So I think when you look at it in that political and emotional context, it starts to make a lot more sense why they would, you know, why they crack down in Hong Kong and bore the the reputational costs of doing that. But, you know, that's fundamental. And I, that's why I also worry about Taiwan, which may look crazy from the outside, but from their perspective, is an absolute vital national interest. Yeah, well, yeah, expand on that a little bit. I mean, how is it, do, do, do you really anticipate or can you anticipate uh, that uh, China is prepared uh, to, you know, at the extreme, invade Taiwan, notwithstanding, uh, you know, the very evident opposition from the United States um, and, uh, you know, to some degree, some sense of protection from others, but let's just say the United States. Yeah, so major war is always unlikely, but a war over Taiwan has become more likely than I'm comfortable with. And I think for a couple of reasons. One is that China's longstanding strategy of peaceful reunification, I think, is, is pretty much finished because the trends are going all against China. If you look at Taiwanese public opinion polls, they show the emergence of this distinct independent Taiwanese identity, where people say, I am just Taiwanese, I'm not Chinese. That's a majority of the population now. And certainly and w- among the younger generation that's coming up, they very much identify as Taiwanese, not Chinese. So this idea that they're ever going to be able to just pull Taiwan back into the mainland's grasp through manifest destiny is starting to go out the window. The second issue is this idea of a window of opportunity. So while the United States has been bogged down fighting insurgents in the Middle East, China has been relentlessly developing the ability to conquer and make moves on Taiwan. And at the same time, Taiwan, you know, Taiwanese politicians have invested in uh, fancy hardware like F-16s that, you know, get a lot of headlines, but aren't actually that militarily useful in a scenario where China launches all these missiles at Taiwan and blows up a big portion of its air force before it even gets off the ground, right? So Mm -hmm. both Taiwan and the United States have kind of taken their foot off the gas pedal. Their militaries are not really well postured to defeat a Chinese invasion, even though I think a Chinese invasion would be extremely difficult to pull off. And so if if you're the Chinese and you see trends going against you in Taiwan, Uh, you see a slowing economy, which means you're going to need to rely, if you're the CCP, rely more on nationalism um, to generate legitimacy for your regime. But you also see looking down into the 2030s, the United States and Taiwan have these long-term defense plans to actually create a much more formidable defense of the island. All these new drones and high-tech missiles they're going to bring online, a more porcupine so-called defense for Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And you could start to see, well, hey, this might be our only shot at this. We're never going to get a better shot at this. We've seen historically, you know, the Imperial Japan is the, the obvious extreme case where it's like, it's sort of now or never. We either hit them at Pearl Harbor or we have to be subjugated and lose this national interest. You, you can see why it might be worrisome. And there's just lots of warning signs coming out of 
Beijing, you know, built they're, they're, they've been massively expanding their military bases across the Taiwan Strait. They have been sustaining the most provocative show of force in a generation since September of, mm-hmm. of last year, where they're sending these big armadas across the median line between in the Taiwan Strait. That's something they used to respect. Now they don't respect that anymore. Uh, and, and if you can believe Ta- uh, Chinese state media, I mean, those suggest that the majority of the Chinese people are on board with the idea of moving on Taiwan and would rather have it happen sooner, like by 2025, than later. And you also just have to worry that Xi Jinping is surrounded by a bunch of yes men who are telling him, yeah, our military is up to the task. And, you know, this is part of your legacy. And he staked his legitimacy on it. He's literally said this problem cannot be passed on generation to generation. It's part it's critical for the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So he staked a lot of his political capital on that. And so, again, it's not like war is likely, but there are certain warning signs that are, are flashing right now that make it more likely than I think it's been in at least a generation. And that, that really scares me. I, fair enough. Uh, I, I, I take your point. I'll tell you, what is it that you win? Uh, even if they were successful, what would be there after what would apparently be an enormous conflict cross straight uh, and, and obviously obliging an occupation I'm not sure what i see uh, as the result of that maybe they don't care uh, but it does seem to be relevant at some level sure I, I think you're absolutely right and this is why you know some people say well they may not even invade they might just bomb the bejesus out of taiwan and like incinerate right. taipei and i don't think that's likely because their goal is to of course reincorporate taiwan right. is a prosperous loyal demo- uh, province of of china right on, at the same time, though, I think they have convinced themselves that the Taiwanese will just give up, essentially. Like, if you can land an army, yeah, yeah. So you can just overwhelm them in a fait accompli. If you just land the army on the beaches, the Taiwanese, they are not fighters. It, it, this is the mainland view, right? Like, they are right. And, and if you look at the morale, I mean, the opinion polls actually suggest that. that. That the Taiwanese people do not believe they can defend themselves. They mm-hmm. basically just lay down prostrate and hope Uncle Sam bails them out. Um, and I'm not sure the American people either are eager to fight. So you can see from a Chinese perspective, it's like, hey, if we just punch hard enough and give mm-hmm. them enough of a bloody nose at the outset, they mm-hmm. may be so stunned that we don't have to wage this bloody counterinsurgency and occupation war. And we take back this province and we not only get most of the infrastructure intact, we get the semiconductors that are there intact. We get this new loyal Chinese province. And most importantly, even if we lose a lot of wealth, mm-hmm. we're gaining back the unsinkable aircraft carrier, the thing that was taken from us by the Japanese, that's going to do wonders for Xi Jinping's legacy and for the CCP. So again, I, I take your point. Um, I think that's one of the many reasons why war is unlikely, but it's not a it's not a done deal. I mean, you could see it on the other side. And this is, again, the same thing that happened with the Japanese, where they thought if we just hit the Americans hard enough, they'll back down, they're a paper tiger, and it led to World War II. So. So, so let's go to that last piece as we kind of wind up this conversation. And it's another piece that you, you yourself have, have recently written. Sorry for the title, but uh, America is not ready for a war with China. How to get the Pentagon to focus on the real threats. And so yeah, then what are the real threats? And, and more importantly, what, sh- what must the United States do, particularly, obviously, uh, the national security community and the and the military do um, in order to deal with that potential threat that you've raised. 
Right. So for all the reasons we just discussed, I'm worried that the most likely area for like massive conflict is the Taiwan Strait. Right. But if you look at how the military is postured, it's just it's spread out all over the globe. The, U- the Pentagon is still sending aircraft carriers to the Middle East, I guess, to like deter Iran somehow. I don't understand how that really works. And meanwhile, they've actually left no aircraft carriers in Asia for periods of time. Um, and at the same time, there, you know, the U.S. Navy and the Air Force are still largely that that was built by Ronald Reagan during the 1980s. And they've basically been refurbishing a lot of these platforms. A lot of those heavy, the cruisers, the nuclear powered submarines, a lot of the heavy bombers, they're all going to be retired in the 2020s because they, they literally they're catching on fire. They're breaking down. They cannot withstand another upgrade, let alone accommodate the sensors and uh, munitions they would need to be competitive in a war with China. So the mili- and and the most important thing is that the U.S. base structure in Asia, you know, it's putting all of our eggs in a couple of very vulnerable baskets. The only two bases within 500 miles of Taiwan are on Okinawa, Japan, and right. China has missiles that can potentially wipe them out, as well as maybe even target Guam, more than a thousand miles away. And so you're just inviting, you're creating space for a Chinese potential successful preemptive attack. And the, the thing, the reason I wrote this piece is because everyone knows this. Like everyone in the, the defense expert community has been aware of this for more than a decade. Lots of smart people have been writing really great reports and articles about how you need to change this. And there's a pretty clear way forward, which is lots more bases that are spread out all over East Asia. Okay. Uh, and then pre-position, you know, loitering cruise missiles and mines and armed drones near and around the Taiwan Strait so that if China tries to send its invasion force across, you can basically turn that area into a no man's land. You know, it's like a high-tech minefield. This is a pretty simple uh, military strategy. Lots of people are on board with it. And yet there has been so little change in the overall U.S. military posture. And it's about to get worse in the 2020s because of the retirement of so many of these workhorse uh, warships and aircraft. And so I, I wrote this piece saying, well, why is this? Why, why has it been so hard to change? And it, the piece really delves into the political incentives facing various actors, the defense contractors, the combatant commanders who want their big aircraft carriers, mm-hmm. the, the, the army who wants to, you know, they land wars in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe are better for them, right? So there's just all these political interests that prevent a change that most people in the defense expert community have been, their hair has been on fire about it for more than a decade. But if you're right, and if, you know, the, the, the life of these uh, uh, military uh, uh, weapons, uh, and particularly things like the aircraft carriers and the cruisers and all the other kinds of things are reaching inevitably their end, isn't this exactly an opportunity? Because, uh, in effect, um, as you've argued and others argue, uh, these are really vulnerable uh, weapons platforms, and it would be sizably better <laughs> to shift strategy, tacti- you know, tactically and strategically, uh, to far more to asymmetric uh, kinds of weaponry, right? Uh, yeah, so it's certainly an opportunity. So if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said right. yeah, we, can, we can start putting new missile launchers on barges and merchant ships and drones while we slowly retire mm-hmm. our legacy force. The problem is we haven't done any of that. So we haven't like upped anything. And so now we're still relying on those workhorse ships and aircraft. And we're gonna, they're gonna, there's, there's going to be a mass retirement of them in the 2020s. And we have nothing to stand up in their place. So there will be this gap where just from a quantitative perspective, you're going to have hundreds fewer vertical launch tubes 
floating, you know, this is like the sine qua non of modern naval powers. Like how many missile launch tubes can you just like put around your enemy? There's gonna be hundreds fewer of those floating around East Asia for at least a few years during this downturn. And the Chinese know it, you know, and, and in the meantime, they're bringing on lots more missile launchers, uh, a rocket launcher system that can range all of Taiwan from mainland China, new amphibious ships. So this is like the geopolitical equivalent of a ticking time bomb, right? So like, I just hope that, you know, there is this growing chorus that's saying, you know, we have, we have to downsize other missions. Mm -hmm. We cannot rely on, send our aircraft, our bomber aircraft to fly over Iran every time it does something that we don't like or to hunt down insurgents, lightly armed insurgents, while leaving East Asia totally exposed. We have to start downsizing other missions because we haven't stood anything up to take the place of these very increasingly vulnerable forces. But isn't the Defense Department, in fact, doing that? I mean, you know, the the so-called I don't want to the pivot has become well overused. But, you know, they clearly have have decided to move out of Afghanistan one way or another there. So, you know, and and they're they're downsizing, you know, surveillance and so forth. They just announced recently in the Middle East. So isn't that, you know, beginning that alteration that you're. Uh, you're thinking about, which is, you know, let's not expend all our, our resources in the Middle East. Let's, uh, you know, move them to where uh, where they're needed. Isn't would, that the military would, doing that? Sure. You would think that given the mantra of a rebalance and everyone, you know, the defense secretary under the Trump administration, he, when they asked him what his priority was, he says, China, China, China. Right. So you would think just from verbally, that certainly is the case that the, the U.S. national defense strategy, this document that's supposed to guide everything we're doing is all about great power competition. Right. And the need for that. The problem with all of these is that there has no one has really done the tough work of axing missions. And I'm not talking about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which are, have been wound down, but the U.S. military it has become the department of everything. Like literally military personnel are all over the world doing every conceivable job in almost every country around the globe. And in particular, there's all these, what they call presence missions where like the whole point is just to show that we're there. And so that (laughs) ties up hundreds of thousands of uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, um, because they're constantly doing these like showing the flag kind of operations and doing election security and counter narcotics and, environmental conservation, just everything. And, and, and Biden, you know, even though he says China is his top priority, also wants the Pentagon to handle a whole range of unconventional security threats like climate change. Um, the current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, he's also said China's his top priority, but he also, he was the former CENTCOM commander, you right. know, Middle Eastern forces, so not exactly a, an Asia first advocate. And so it's just that so many of our forces are tied up in these kind of low level peacetime operations. And that naturally trades off with their bandwidth, their resources to do wartime operations. It's also just ground down the force. Like the, the rate of accidents has skyrocketed um, in the last couple of decades, and not just because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Literally, units are being sent out at three times, in some cases, the Pentagon recommended rate. Aircraft carriers are doing what they call double pump deployments, where like you deploy, you take like one day of rest, you immediately deploy again. And that, that's just wearing out all of the, the men, women, and machinery that we have at our disposal. Accidents have killed twice as many service members since 2006 in the US military as all those killed in combat combined. So you're, you get a sense of just, you know, through things like ship collisions, ships literally exploding. Um, you know, this is all 
all symptoms of this hyperactivity that leads to nothing. You know, these endless peacetime operations mm-hmm. that don't aren't really critical to the combat power that we desperately need in East Asia now. Well, there clearly is work still still to be done. I I want to thank you, Michael, for taking the time out to. Uh, uh, join with us and talk about this uh, kind of changing global uh, order kind of configuration, both on the military side and more broadly uh, strategic side. So thank you for being with us today. Alan, thank you so much. It was a pleasure.